Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Bay Writers' Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Chigozie Obioma in conversation with Jennifer Byrne, recorded live at the 2015 Byron Bay Writers' Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronbayrightersfestival.com.au. I'm Jennifer Byrne. It's great to be with you today at the Byron Bay Writers' Festival. Are you all having a great time? Yes. And uh, hasn't it been amazing? Um, and I am on it and uh, what a pleasure it is today to be speaking with um, the most interesting Chigozi Obioma um, who please just welcome him. And now um, Chigozi is uh, born in Nigeria. He now works in America as an Associate Professor of Literature and Creative Writing. Some of you will have seen him speak already. Um, the treat about this is that we're getting just a focus on him and his work, which is, at this stage, the debut work, The Fisherman, which, as many of you will know, has been long-listed for the booker. And I would like to invite you to thank this debut novelist and, wel- and welcome him with an applause for that feat. That is a very big thing. Thank you very much for coming. It's, it's a great pleasure and honor to be here. And I, I want to say that Jennifer is, is, you know, the crowd puller, not me. <laughs> she, 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 she's trying to put it on me, but, but I, I mean, I appreciate your doing this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, no, no, don't, really, please, thank you. <laughs> Just save your hands for cleaning up the garbage. Um, no, for, for applauding. Like, very briefly, The, the Fisherman uh, is uh, an extraordinary book. Essentially, it is a family story which touches on, which involving four boys who go to a forbidden river to fish. And it's about the diabolical consequences which follow from that. It is also... Um, touches on in a in a referential way the the uh, the foundations of Nigeria, the Nigerian state, of course, from from whence Obiema comes, Mr. Obiema comes. So, I'm not going to tell you more than that at the moment. What I have suggested to Jagosi is that he actually reads a small extract from the near part of the book, um, which will give you a bit of a sense of the father. Because it is a family story. There's a father, there's a mother, and there's six children, but the four sons are the ones who we really hear about most. Um, And I I think that will give you a bit of a flavour for where we should start speaking. With pleasure. So I think I should say before I begin reading that the novel is narrated by the least of the four boys, uh, Benjamin. And it is told two decades removed from the narrative, a uh, dramatic uh, moment of the piece. So uh, <clears throat> he's looking back retrospectively uh, to when he was nine, two decades on. So it's his voice we hear. The ego. Father was an ego. The mighty bird that planted his nest high above the rest of his peers, hovering and watching over his young eagles the way a king guards his throne. A home, the three-bedroom bungalow he bought the year Ikena was born, was a sculpted iron, a place he ruled with a clenched fist. 
This is why everyone had come to believe that had father not left Akure, a home would not have become vulnerable in the first place, and that the kind of adversity that befell us would not have happened. Father was an unusual man. When everyone was taking up the gospel of birth control, he, an only child who had grown up with his mother longing for siblings, had a dream of a house full of children. He wanted to have a clan from his own body. This dream fetched him much ridicule in the biting economy of 1990s Nigeria, but he swatted off the insults as if they were mere mosquitoes. He sketched a pattern for our future, a map of dreams. Ikena, my oldest brother, was to be a doctor, although later, after Ikena showed much fascination with planes at an early age and encouraged by the fact that there were aviation schools in uh, Enugu, Makodi, and on nature towns where Ikena could learn to fly, father changed it to pilot. Boja was to be a lawyer and Obembe, the family's medical doctor. Although I had opted to be a veterinarian, that's difficult to say. It's difficult <laughs> for us too. <laughs> to work in a forest or tend animals at a zoo, anything that involved animals. Father decided I would be a professor. David, our younger brother, who was barely three in the year father moved to Yola, was to be an engineer. A career was not readily chosen for Nkame, our one-year-old sister. Father said there was no need to decide such thing for women. Although we knew from the beginning that fishing was nowhere on Father's list, we did not think of it at the time. It became a concern from the night when Mother threatened to tell Father about our fishing, thereby kindling the fire of fear of Father's rotting us. She believed that would be that we'd been pushed into doing it by bad spirits that must be exercised by strokes of father's whip. She knew would rather wish that the sun fell down and burned the earth with us in it than receive father's racking get on on the flesh of, of our buttocks. She said with forgotten that our father's, father was not the kind of man who would dip his foot in another shoe because his own was damp. He'd rather trek the earth on bare feet. So that gives you a flavour both of of the family and most importantly of the writing. Um, it's a wonderful thing. He would rather dip his feet, his foot in another shoe because his own was damp. Um, as I understand it, Jugosi, you wrote this book when you were living in Cyprus in your early twenties, and you wrote it in a state of homesickness. For Nigeria. Yeah, so I I say that the book was born out of consummate nostalgia. So I was uh, living in Cyprus, which was a very far-flung place from Nigeria. And uh, I had chosen to go there by myself. I came up with this weird belief that to to be a successful writer, I had to leave Nigeria. I had to leave uh, in kind of literary exile. So I was in Cyprus, and I became very homesick because I, I, I'm a, from a family of, of 12 kids. So I have six brothers, and I was very close with, to them while we were growing up. So I wanted to come back home after the first year in college in Cyprus, 
But my dad was like, well, you chose to go. We cannot pay for you to come home anytime you want as if you are the CEO of a company. <laughs> Stay there. <laughs> so I was there for two years. And then I became very homesick. So one evening, uh, uh, during a conversation on the phone with my dad, he talked about the increasing closeness between my two old, uh, oldest brothers, who were technically born in the same year, one in January and the other in November. So uh, yeah, my mom was a warrior. <laughs> they, they used to have this crazy uh, sibling rivalry when they were children and it would sometimes spiral into acts of violence. And we never imagined that they would ever get along. But in 2009, my dad told me of how they, they'd become so close now in their early 30s that they were, you know, even vac vacationing together. So I wanted to write a tribute to them, uh, you know, to, to just think about what was the worst that could have happened in those days when they used to fly, uh, fight. So it, it was born out of that need to, to, to write a tribute to them. It also, um, I mean, the act that battle between the two older siblings is really the dominating thing for a long time in the book. But it, it starts with an absence. It starts with the departure of the father, which is a strange inversion. I mean, you were the one who went away in your family. <laughs> um, tell me, it, it kind of had, once you know the father left, this sort of has an inevitability of what's going to come. You know dark things are going to happen. Yeah, I, I, I think I... So, so the father's presence, of course, was what opened up the possibility of, of, of the eventualities that would later culminate as the tragic event of the novel. But I think uh, the knowingness of... of, of the trend or the trajectory of, of the book, it's of the story, sorry, was something I, I decided to, to produce, in, uh, to, to construct in that way, uh, using what I think is the core element of the you know, Greek tragedy. So you know that something, you know that something bad will happen. I mean, that is the, the classic Greek. Mm. Uh, tragedy, or even the Shakespearean one, but then it's a question of how. So I, I, how and when it will happen. So I think from from the moment when the novel begins, it's a novel about how, mostly. Yes. You know, yes, you know, there's disaster looming, which, which is, it's a very interesting combination because. I, you know, we are familiar with the tropes of Greek myth and Shakespeare, and um, you know we know that. But you have done it in a language which is, which is almost magical realist at times. Which is because the agent of doom is a madman, is a madman, and he is a very dark character. Tell us about Apollo. He is a very formidable force in this book. So uh, Apollo is the. Uh vagrant uh, who walks about uh, in, in the novel. And, but he is also the catalyst of, of what happens, of, of the conflict of the novel. So I came about the idea of him uh, early on in, in the plotting of the book. So as I said, I, I, I wanted to write about this entity, 
uh, what, any kind of entity at all, like a family, I was thinking of what was it that could have come, that can come in between anything, uh, say a family, and destroy them. So what, uh, you know, and, and then I, I, I thought I would have an external force coming. And around that time, I was reading a book uh, by Will Durant, uh, an American historian, and, and it's a tome. It's called The Great Civilization. But there's this concurrent statement that runs through the whole volume, about six of them, that uh, a great civilization cannot be destroyed from the outside. It has to come from within. So I wanted uh, Abulu to be that force that would incise the unity uh, by the seed of the prophecy. So what happens to the boys? Is it because Abulu's prophecy has a potent power to destroy? Or does the whatever becomes of the boys' lives, does it happen because they believed it? Mm. So. Well, yeah, I mean, or to put it another way, does what happened have to happen, which is right. the classic Greek tragedy, or do they allow it to happen? Did they allow it, yeah. It's another way of saying it. Yeah. Were, I mean, were you consciously drawing on all those influences? Do you think, I'm going to run away with this one to my <laughs> hollow and this one to my hollow and collect them all? Well, I, I, I grew up on uh, Shakespeare's works, and, and it was inevitable that I would acquire some of those uh, uh, elements, you know. Uh, but in the sense of trying to pattern the novel after uh, any of their works, I, it wasn't a conscious, uh, you know, uh, decision, let me say. You, you write a lot um, and use the images of birds and animals a great deal. And um, in fact, you know, they all have, like, the father is an eagle, as you heard. Um, Chagosi ring, the mother is a falconer. Ikenna, the boy who is the oldest and is um, tragically sent quite mad by events. Um, he's a python, one chapter. He's a sparrow, another chapter. Animals all the time through it. What, why and what does that signify? So I, I wanted to construct a novel on how I think memory works, the pattern of memory or the pattern of remembrance. So I, it might just be me and my siblings, but I, I think that when we remember the past, most of the times it doesn't come in a chronological form. Even if it does, it's, there are some things that are for granted and some things that are backgrounded at the onset of the remembrance. And so I came to the conclusion that uh, children would usually remember things by association. So they, they would, suppose uh, you know, a child goes to school and sees a bully, for example, and, and comes back to tell, to recount the experience. He'll be like, you know, uh, there was this lion. This guy who beat me up was a lion. So I wanted to have Benjamin see things that way. And so they, they, they recount things by association with what they are fascinated about. And Benjamin loves animals. Benjamin should have actually come from Australia. 
<laughs> you know, so. I, I, think we, I think now is the time to make a brief diversion and point out that Chigozi Opioma also loves animals, have been out <laughs> hunting animals, and he's actually quite grief-stricken that he hasn't managed to see a kangaroo. <laughs> well, he should get me one. Uh, <laughs> okay, so yeah, he, so, so he, he's able to talk about uh, his experiences by associations. So that's why... Uh, He's able to see, to rationalize and, interp and see the world through distance. And one evident, uh, evidence of, of how that actually informs his understanding of things is when uh, one of his brothers died, Ikenna. And, and so he sees Ikenna as a dead person. But then uh, he doesn't cry because to him Ikenna has become a sparrow, which is in fact a beautiful thing. So that whole chapter is, is called the sparrow. So he can ask, uh, so while others were mourning because to them, Ikenna was actually dead, he, he saw Ikenna, and, and so, you know, as a sparrow. And so the, the uh, force of the tragedy is diminished, and, and he's able to live with it and actually not and, and it's, it's true. I mean, the tragic things happen, but because of these, the gentleness and the elliptical nature, in some ways, of the stories, you keep. It, it doesn't. Um, you do, you're distressed, but you're not upset. You're not upset. Yeah. Where the stories, particularly um, uh, the ones about animals and stuff, did, did you hear them as a child? Were you told these stories by your parents and grandparents? Uh, I would say no. I mean, they, they, they of course are the classic children's stories about, you know, the 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 escapades of tortoise or Anansi, the the ant or whatever. But I I I, I think I uh, made the conscious decision to. So okay, so Benjamin has that element. You've given it off. I that I I love animals. So as a child, I would try to rationalize everything through the prism of, of animals. So if you are nodding, you must be a lizard, you know. <laughs> that, that was how I saw the world. What was your favorite animal? It, it was the sparrow, <laughs> yeah. Why is that? I don't know, I, I, I think uh, they're very, they, they, they are, they are, it's hard to describe, but, but at the time, uh, I thought they were very, very uh, proud somehow of, of, of who they were. So if, if you saw them fly around with pigeons, they would just hop on things. They always would go for the lofty positions, and the pigeons, they wouldn't, if you threw, uh, say, like uh, food to them or grains, they, they wouldn't go near that stuff when the lesser birds are there. And, and, and there's something grand about them. <laughs> they, they have a, a, a sense of, of dignity. That's, that's so lovely, because in our culture, really, I think it's fair to say we think of the sparrow as the humble bird. Yeah. Oh, oh sorry, the humble one. No. Yeah. <laughs> For you, it's the proud one. They, are, they have dignity. And Excellent. Um, so... You, we talked about the time when you were in Cyprus briefly, when you, one, how painful, how difficult was it for you to leave that huge family? 
including the, the, the squabbling siblings, but also was it necessary to give you a sense of clarity about your own country? Oh, yeah, uh, yes and no. Uh, it was very painful to leave home. I, you know, I, I thought I would enjoy it. I wanted to, to have adventure, but uh, my first year was, was very painful. But one thing I discovered on getting to Cyprus was, was almost a very, an epiphany of a sort. So I discovered that I didn't have a friend. You know, I, I, people, the freshmen were like, oh, my friend in this, but I, I didn't have a friend. My friends were my brothers and sisters. You know, we were so self-sufficient that if you needed to play soccer, you could gather people, you know, enough to, to do that. So there, there wasn't, yeah, I mean, a soccer team and a reserve. There, there, there wasn't any need to make friends. And, and it wasn't until I left home that I discovered that I was socially deficient in a way. You, know. you said you left home because um, you didn't think you would you, you needed to leave home to write. Where did you get that notion from? I, uh, I just believed, I just came up with the idea that if I want, it's better uh, when you want to write fiction to trust in hindsight rather than uh, witnessing. So by witnessing, I mean uh, documenting what you see. So I would prefer to make believe rather than documentation. So, and, so I believe that to write about a place in fiction, you have to be apart from there. And that gives you a better perspective. And, and there's a small theory which doesn't, sometimes doesn't make sense to me, but I will say it anyway. If I were to write about this moment, I will just write, I will describe the obvious things, you shaking your head and your eyeglasses and your smile, <laughs> stuff like that. But if I were to go back uh, to my you know, room later in the night and try to recollect this moment, the unobvious things trickling. So there are these fine details that I think make fiction interesting that come in when I have to make things up. So that's why I think uh, you know it was better for me to leave home. It's interesting, really. Uh, I think we should explain, because we're talking about how you were writing about Nigeria and what we have told you about the book so far is about four children, four boys fighting. Um, and I realize it, it, this is, it, it can labor a metaphor to over explain it. So, but I do think it would be good to mention that, why, why don't we have a little bit of a reading about Abulu first, and then we can just talk about how that connects with, that you are actually writing about your own country, not just about the characters in that book. So you want me to read the chapter on Abulu? Okay. Yeah. Remember the bit we talked about. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, bossy, that's the other memory he's going to take home. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So that's chapter 14, the Leviathan. But Abulu was a Leviathan, an undying whale that could not be easily killed by a band of valiant sailors. He could not die as easily as other men of flesh and blood, 
although he was no different from other people of his kind, the insane vagabond who wallowed by reason of his mental condition in the lowest level of privation possible and was thus exposed to extreme dangers. It probably had closer shapes with death than any one of them. It was known too well that he mainly fell down fields too, filled from dumps. Because he had no house, he fed from whatever he chanced upon. Leftover meat scattered around the open pavilioned abattoirs, crumbs of food from dumps, fruits dropped from trees. To have fed from there for so long, one would expect him to have long contracted some infirmity, but he lived hale and healthy, his belly bulging into a punch. When he walked on a bed of shattered glass and bled out, people thought that was it, but he showed up again within days. Yet they were all, these were only st little stories of what should have killed the madman. There were many more. My brother and I went home one day and returned after mother had briefly come home to boy yams for lunch and gone back to her shop. When we got to find the madman, he was there all right, but nothing had prepared us for what we'd encounter. He was bent over a walk set on two big stones and was emptying the liquid content of a water bottle. Pieces of wood, apparently intended as firewood, were piled between the stones, but they were unlit. After draining off the content of the bottle into the earthenware, the madman took up a beverage can whose content he could not easily, we could not easily decipher, turned it into the wok and began painstakingly emptying its content into it. He would shake the tin, peer into it microscopically, and scratch out its content into the wok until, satisfied he'd emptied it, he placed the tin delicately on a small stool on which was a pile of assorted tins. Then dashing into his truck, he returned with what appeared to be a pack of leaves, some bones, a spherical object, and a white powder that must have been salt or sugar. He poured distance into the earthenware and stepped back with a jolt as if he'd encountered the inflammable effect of plunging things into heated oil. It became clear to my utter bemusement that the madman was, or thought he was, cooking a gallimaufry of fields and waste materials. For a moment, we abandoned our quest and stood watching this scenario in disbelief until two men stopped by to join us as spectators of Abulu in his kitchen. So I mean, we're looking at not just a madman, um, which is based on truth. There are such men who wander around, but we're looking at a scavenger. We're looking at a monster. We're looking at, I mean, those of you who've read the Greek myths, you know, like Cyclops in his cave um, with, the, with the bones of the sailors. We're looking at a creation which is more than what he is. He's also, you're using him as, um, as a symbol of your country. And then perhaps you could just explain a little bit what your intention is there. Okay, of, of the symbol. So, uh, as I said earlier, I was trying to uh, look for what could come in uh, into any entity from the outside and be that external force that would disrupt 
the equation of things and and cause the say the destruction of that entity from the inside and so i was you know thinking of the situation of nigeria which uh, as some of you probably know uh, has shared the same fate as australia so we were colonized by britain and uh, so they came in and and made a country out of different principalities and and tribes and, and nations, actually, you know. So Abulu, to me, uh, is, is that force that came in from the outside and says, be like this. This is how your life would be by that testamentary force of his prophecy. He, he changes the dynamics uh, of, of the group. So he is a colonialist force, and, and so he engenders the, you know, the collapse of, of the civilization we, we had. But part of its power also is that he is given too much heeding, too much attention, isn't he? I mean, he, if they didn't believe that he was what they, he says he is, mm -hmm. or what he seems to be. Yeah, so, so, so the people buy uh, the idea, they are overpowered by by the force of, of his prophecy. And, and so it's, it's able to, I mean, I want my readers to decide for themselves, is Abulu's prophecy actually potent? Or does it come true because the kids themselves allow it, as you said? Yeah, they give it the strength. Um, you've, you've been described recently, I saw, as, as a, this is terrible, I, I just thought it was so awful. I've got the biggest new thing out of Africa. <laughs> Which is so wrong on every level in terms of a way of describing a young writer. But hey, the point being, um, you're carrying a lot of weight on your shoulder. Tell me, um, when did because it was only last week, I think, the news about the long listing came in. How did you find out and how are you handling it? It's big uh, for a debut novel. I'm, I'm not carrying any weight at all on my shoulder. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you, if you say so. <laughs> well, they, you know, actually, the Achebe thing is probably working against me. It's, you know. Explain. I, I, it might be. So, so the, the, the New York Times labels crowns me the head of Achebe. And then, uh, you know, everyone now has to read my book from, from that uh, vantage point. I wish they didn't, but, but yeah. Uh, the the Booker news for me uh, was an unexpected thing, but but see what 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 I'm excited about. The book was published a long time ago in Australia, actually in February, and so it was already going comatose. No one was talking about it anymore. So this has pumped new life into it. <laughs> And, and, and so there's, you know, there's a resurgence of interest, uh, and I couldn't ask for more. What did your many siblings say? Do they, do they tease you? They, they must be so proud of you. Yeah, well, one or two of them has read the book. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> they, my dad has read too, uh, and they, they just tell me that it's okay. It's, it's <laughs> they refuse to talk about it, really. 
and I, and I think she I goes, think they are processing it. Yes, I think I think if you say often enough, there's no weight on your shoulder. I think you will come to believe it. <laughs> um, or you can always have a word to our current Booker winner, um, Richard Flanagan, because uh, he said, you know, it's it's been a phenomenal year. Are you a bit nervous about the circus aspect of it, or you think we'll take it as it comes? I don't even think that I will be shortlisted, but 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 let's see. Let's when we get there, we'll cross the bridge. I think. <laughs> All right. Thank you. You mentioned um, Achebe, um, and and of course. Uh, is referring to Chinua Achebe, who won the Booker, I think it was, back in late 50s. Was that right? The international one, yeah. The international Booker, um, with Things Fall Apart, which is one of the seminal um, writings from Africa. But this whole, is there such a thing as African writing? It always seems strange when I, because it's so many countries in one continent. There is. I, I think the reason you're asking that question you wouldn't probably ask Fanagan if he's Australian. It's because some African writers have been disavowing their uh, and saying they're not African writers, and it has be, there's there's been a whole discourse about it, and so they they are shedding their identity for whatever reason. I mean, I sympathise with them though. They they are fighting against what they think is the provincialism of 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 works from, uh, you know, minority countries or whatever, the subaltern countries. So there is this tendency to shelve our works, you know, under ethnic this thing and not pay attention. So they are arguing that their works should be seen as just literature. But I am, for me, an African writer, and I don't mind if you put me under the category of African in your bookstore. African descent, I'm fine with that. I couldn't claim to be a Chinese writer. My accent <laughs> will, will give me away, so I am, in fact, an African writer. No, it's interesting. I was asking, out of genuine curiosity, I didn't know that there was a debate within Africa. Oh, there about is a what, serious debate. About what, whether you are a Nigerian writer or a, a, a Ethiopian writer. Or, there, really? there is a debate on that, a serious one. Well, and, and the correct thing is to be the writer of your country, not of your continent, is to, that right? To be... Afropolitan or a, a, a person of no nation. I, I don't think I want to be that. You know, I want to be a, an African writer. You live abroad now, and you teach in, in America, as I said. How often do you go home? And has it changed? I mean, you're only in your late twenties now. Has it changed much since you've left? I was at home just a couple of days ago, and flew here. Uh, from Nigeria. It's changing, in fact. Uh, I, I, I think it would be unfair to say that, or dishonest, let me say, uh, that it hasn't been changing. But it's, it's at snail speed, you know. And, and Nigeria has, you and I were just discussing, Nigeria is a paradox. We, we, it's, it's, it's interesting, but, but I think we earn more money than Australia. But, but you cannot compare both countries. Nigeria is an extremely rich country. It's the sixth largest oil producing nation in the world. In terms of income, you know, we're very rich, very in abundance. 
So, but there's nothing in Nigeria still. We don't have even constant electricity, you know. So, uh, there's there's a long way to go, but but yeah, a lot of things have changed for the better. Um, we don't. We only have about five more minutes. But if there is anyone who would like a question, this would be the time to ask it, have a think about that, um, and. I mean, just while you're thinking, the, the, I've, when I've been reading about you, I've been really struck also that the books that you said have been influential upon you. You've mentioned the Nigerian ones, but you've mentioned things like Tess of the Vidobils or Lolita. How do they yeah. play in Nigeria? <laughs> so I, uh, you know, being, uh, we, we, we had British curriculum in, in the AP English, and, and so, uh, I've read a lot of British uh, classic works. Uh, John Bunyan and the rest of them were my favorite. Tess of the Duba Vials, as you said. But then, uh, what I love most about literature, actually, a fiction to be specific, it's not plot, it's not characters, it's nothing, it's language. I li I, I, sometimes I don't care about the story. I just like to see that dance on the page, that music, and it's what, you know, uh, you can construct a novel that has nothing, that doesn't even have a plot, but once you give me language that wow me, that is what I call fiction. How old were you when you started writing? Uh, we so share that love. Very, very young age. I, I had a complete novel by the time I was 11. So. <laughs> so Any good? Uh, I don't know. It was about a, a dwarf king. So the idea was good, actually. So a dwarf so who rules over, you know, tall people. So. Uh. Game of dwarfs. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Does anyone want to ask Jagosi anything? I've got a question. Mm? Yes. Um, I'd just like to say how much I'm enjoying reading your book. Congratulations and thank you. Um, I have a question about the father figure in the book. Um, the, the relationship with his children and the way he treats his children I actually find really quite confronting. And there's one scene there where the children are beaten to a point where they are quite severely injured. And I found that really confronting. Can you talk a little bit about the father figure and is that standard you know, treatment and, and how that's been received? Well, I, I expected that question. <laughs> I, I remember uh, during my tour in Germany, uh, there was this woman who was, who was very, very angry, in fact, <laughs> because of that scene. Yeah, uh, that we, so I would say that uh, Nigeria in the 90s was like Britain in the uh, early 20th century. So there's still tough love. And that is love, in fact. So uh, it's, it's believed that if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. And, and so there is corporal punishment as part of the training of children. What you would see as child abuse is, is in fact child love in Africa. 
and 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 it's being seriously promoted and believed in so much that there was this thing that happened uh, in 1997. So there was this deadly criminal who was, you know, he had this whole league of, of, of robbers. They would rob cars. And, and for very long, they were menaced to the entire nation. Sometimes the entire highway would be shut down because of him. And so he was eventually captured. And so he was tied to a stake. And it was a televised execution. So and then he said something. So th there's this moment where you have the last wish. And he said he wanted his mom to come forward. And then his mom comes forward. And then he says, I want to whisper something into your ears. And he sinks his teeth and bites off her ear <laughs> on state TV. So and then he says this. He says, when I was a little child, uh, I was her only son, and she spoiled me. She would allow me to have whatever I wanted. Even when I stole, she, she stood for me and never allowed me to be punished. And this is why I became a criminal. And, and so everyone would punish their kids. Though you did say that that image of the really hard father was slightly diminishing, but. If that only happened in 97, maybe not so fast. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's changing. I, I heard recently that in some schools, primary schools, they no longer have it. I mean, people are becoming uh, much more Western, I think. That was a terrific question. Thank you. <laughs> Great question. Um, now, look, we are going to have to finish because I know you all have other sessions to attend. But just, Chigozi, is it right that... In, in um, your language, may God give blessings is the name, is, is the church. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, mm. may God and all the birds you love and all the animals in nature give you blessings for your thing. I personally think I wouldn't bet on the booker because who never knows what's on in the book of Judges. I would be dead set sure it's going to get to the short list. Um, Chigozi will be signing his um, book for those who would like to buy it. And um, don't forget your garbage. And thank you. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thank Chigozi Obioma. Thank you very much for coming. It's a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Bay Writers Festival 2015. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from Byron Bay Writers Festival on our website, byronbaywritersfestival.com.au and our iTunes.